The Energy Gang is brought to you by Fluence, a global leader in battery-based energy storage technology and services. From commercializing the first grid-connected battery systems in 2008 to the multi-gigawatt fleet being deployed for customers globally today, the Fluence team has championed energy storage as a cornerstone of our zero-carbon electric future. Learn more at FluenceEnergy.com and join them on their mission to transform the way we power our world. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by NorCal Control. As a total controls and monitoring solution provider for solar, NorCal supports every phase of your project, from turnkey design solutions to post-OEM enhancements, troubleshooting, and training. Their DOS and SCADA systems are based on open architecture hardware and software, eliminating the need for ongoing subscription fees and restrictive service contracts. NorCal goes beyond the vendor mentality, and they partner with you to build solutions that are flexible, scalable, and completely customized to your current and future needs. Maintain, expand, and scale your system anytime, anywhere with confidence. Visit norcalcontrols.net to learn more. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. Imagine doubling all the renewable energy production in the whole country, something that's taken decades to build out. Imagine spending five times as much every year as we do currently on clean energy. That's the scale we're talking about in the $2 trillion climate and environmental justice plans released by Joe Biden. So what would the plans mean We're going to find out. We're going to dig in. Then Facebook pays some 70 climate scientists around the world to factually review material on the platform and advise users if it's accurate. But the system can be played, allowing misleading claims to reach tens of thousands of followers. We're going to re-examine Facebook's disinformation problem. And the largest bribery money laundering scheme ever perpetuated against the people of the state of Ohio. That's the way a U.S. attorney in Ohio put it, announcing the arrest of the Speaker of the House of Representatives in that state. The fraud is all about energy. We will discuss the drama there in Ohio. I've got my regular co-hosts here, Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton. Jigger's the president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He is there in Bethesda, Maryland. Hi, Jigger. Hey, how's it going? Good. Scandal. You're so excited about the third story. You just, corruption, scandal, this is what you're talking about. So I can imagine you're really excited. Well, I would choose to use the word debacle. Debacle. Why debacle? What's the difference? I don't know. I feel like scandal feels, uh, you know, sort of, I don't know. It's an overused word. Wasn't it like the name of a TV show? (laughs) It was, but I think scandal is a pretty good word. Catherine is in Arlington, Virginia. No, wait. Catherine is not in Arlington, Virginia. She is in Washington, D.C., folks. She is in her office in Washington, D.C. She is the co-founder of 38 North Solutions. Catherine, what are you doing there in D.C.? I see I see the city behind you. Yeah, we have had a series of epic storms. Uh, last night, we finally gave out, and our electricity went off, and I had to tell my, my kids that... Um, Abraham Lincoln did not have devices, and they didn't need devices either. And when it gets dark, you go to sleep. So I came into my office the first time since March. Well, it's actually kind of nice and refreshing to see a different like cityscape behind you, but stay safe. You know, I, I think a lot of our listeners will know that you used to be a line worker for a utility. Do you ever get the urge to put on the hard hat and go out and find where the outage is? Oh, like I do that whenever we have an outage, I go and I trace it and try to figure out it was at our transformer, was it the fuse down the street? So yeah, I definitely do that still. She uploads the longitude and latitude for, you know, Dominion. I used to know all the poll numbers. (laughs) We also have a special guest. Emily Atkin is a climate writer and editor. She is founder of the newsletter Heated. She's a a former journalist at the New Republic and Think Progress. And uh, her newsletter is all about people in power and what they're doing or not doing about climate disruption. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about Biden's climate plan first. During the primaries, I think a lot of watchers saw Biden as a disappointment. He was nostalgic about the Obama era. His biggest, most ambitious goal was to get America back into the Paris climate plan and A lot of people felt like he was just way too conservative and not up with the times and what the science was telling us we needed to do. 
But today, or in the last couple of weeks, he's published this sweeping climate plan that is so sweeping, it is actually consistent with climate science, and it is getting a lot of praise from groups that once criticized Biden, or at least they're sort of cautiously joining in and saying, okay, he's he's with it. His climate plan, according to E&E News, calls for more spending than almost all of his other proposals, including education, housing, and the opioid epidemic. It proposes $2 trillion for infrastructure, for a broad range of climate investments, for environmental justice. Um, if I gave you a dollar every second for 60,000 years, we still wouldn't be quite at $2 trillion. So it's a good chunk of change. Um it's part of this frenzy of reports being released by House Democrats, by Biden's campaign, and just this week, the Democratic Party. So how is Biden doing? What has changed? Catherine, to you first, what is in this report? Yeah, so it's all part of this Build Back Better plan for economic recovery that includes American manufacturing and innovation, modernizing infrastructure, and an equitable clean energy future. There's a whole education workforce piece and then advancing racial equity kind of underpinning everything. So he's very much focused on this as part of an economic recovery vision, but also has it very standards focused. So whether it's auto standards or um, facility building standards or energy efficiency or renewable energy. It's very much focused on standards with really meeting the movement of needing to address the issue of environmental racism. And uh, um, it's big, it's bold, obviously, it's got a lot of money attached to it. And it seems like it's quite thoughtful and holistic in its approach. Emily, uh, you have been following a lot of the pressure on Biden, the evolution of his campaign. What do you make of this report and the difference between what he's saying now and what he was saying months ago? I think it shows that Biden is able to be pressured by the left. And I think that it kind of shows you what the difference is between the, the, type, the type of work, if you're in the climate policy or environmental policy space, the type of work that you can be doing whether you're working for a, uh, trying to pressure a Biden administration or trying to pressure a Trump administration. I don't think anything any activist has, has proposed has been even considered by a Trump administration. So that's one thing. I mean, the climate policy plan that Biden had months ago uh, during the debate spent $1.7 trillion, I believe, over a period of 10 years to achieve a net zero economy by 2050. This plan pledges to spend the same amount of money over a period of four years, so a pretty a more rapid time frame, uh, to achieve net zero by 2050, but also completely decarbonize the electricity sector by 2035, uh, which is a big chunk of the carbon that we emit a big chunk of our contribution to climate change. Uh, and then plus all these extra environmental justice initiatives, most notably Biden's pledge to give 40% of the economic benefits from clean energy investments to disadvantaged communities, communities disproportionately affected by environmental pollution and climate change. Um, those are those are big those are big steps forward and those are indications that that he is listening. At the same time, um, I wouldn't say it's a holistic uh, adoption of priorities of the left progressives or even scientists because there is no mention in this plan of how to ramp down fossil fuel production and whether to do that at all. In fact, there really is no mention of of fossil fuels at all. It's it's very positive focused. It's very it's a political messaging document, honestly, in, in many ways. So we can get into any of that if you want, but that's my sort of my hot take. Yeah, I do want to get into the fossil fuel piece. Let's talk about the clean energy piece a little bit more. So $2 trillion. Um, Jigger, like, I think we've suddenly started talking in the trillions of dollars when we're thinking about coronavirus stimulus packages. So it's a lot of money, but it, it all of a sudden, like, we could have multiple bills that are well over a trillion dollars. So $2 trillion, a lot of money? Well, it certainly is a lot of money. I think that, I mean, I guess where I'd start is, you know, where Emily started, which was that, you know, but I don't think that this is where activists have influenced Biden as much as when you look at things like Climate Power 2020 or other massive polling 
um, efforts, they're finding that like 69% of voters in battleground states think that we should be bold on climate, right? So I think that this is Biden saying this is a winning political issue, right? And so I, I wouldn't say that this is something where he's saying, you know, I'm going to do this even though um, it's against my grain. Um, and I was influenced by Sunrise Movement. I think he's influenced by poll data that shows that there's a ton of support amongst his base voters. Uh, and it's the same reason why Trump doesn't love it, because there's less interest from his base voters for these issues. Right. So I think that I don't think that that's true necessarily. Like there are a lot of polling that came out after Trump was elected, like Trump Republicans really love clean energy, maybe not in the same way that we're talking about uh, with the Biden plan. But I, I don't know if that's totally true. Like I, Trump voters do like. Yeah, this I mean, I mean, I, I think we'll have to we'll have to figure out how to parse it. But I, I mean, there's a lot of support for by Republicans for clean energy. So if that's what you mean, that's true. But I think for, you know, the core Trump supporters who, you know, have basically been, you know, the ones who've helped him keep the Republican Party in line. I think a lot of those folks um, have been less enthusiastic about these these sort of government mandates. And so so I can see why Trump, you know, sort of goes back to we're bringing back coal, even though it's not possible. Biden is clearly responding to I think his messaging has evolved because of pressure from the left. But clearly, there are a lot of voters who like this stuff. So uh, even if there's a lot of new stuff in here that was pushed by progressives, it does appeal to a wider range of folks, depending on how you contextualize it. Uh, Let's talk about what this two trillion dollars would do. Right. So what let's let's think about if this plan were passed. Um, what kind of scenes would you see walking around the country, Jigger, if we were spending trillions of dollars on grid improvements, clean energy, uh, you know, environmental cleanup efforts? Like, what 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 would this look like? Well, I think the one big thing that it includes is uh, Chuck Schumer's plan around um, really changing the auto buying experience at the point of sale. So part of what it does is actually moves away from the EV tax credit because EV tax credit obviously is most easily monetized by people who pay a lot of taxes. And it moves it to sort of a rebate program at the time at which you buy a car. So when the person who's selling you a car gives you a comparison between different options, it'll say, well, here's a a grant from the government, and this is why the electric vehicle would be cheaper than the other car that you could buy, right? And I think... I mean, that to me is very thoughtful and it represents, you know, a lot of work with automakers and unions and environmental groups and others together to try to figure that out, which I think is interesting. Um, But that's a huge number in the plan. It's like, you know, it's a it's a four hundred billion dollar it's a four hundred billion dollar line item to be able to convert that many cars over by 2030. So so I think that's representative of what's in the plan. I think, you know, some of the other pieces is, you know, building uh, housing, right? So, you know, 1.5 million units of housing that's clean and, and uh, sorry, energy efficient and whatnot. I think um, the universal broadband's in there, which I think is super useful, right? Because I think part of what we've recognized, not just through distance learning with COVID, but also through our work with Internet of Things and figuring out how to actually have a responsive grid around demand response and load control, is that you really need this 5G rollout across the entire country. And as you may know, 5G is super hard because in exchange for all that extra speed, uh, you actually need to put in a lot more uh, equipment. It doesn't work for long distances. And so it's a tremendous amount of additional infrastructure that has to be built in if people are going to take advantage of that those high speeds. Catherine, anything jump out at you from this report that you like uh, or that feels new to you? Yeah, there are a couple of big pieces. One is that there is a focus on cleanup for the damage that has been done by the fossil fuel industry. This is couched as also job creator and a way to help those communities that have been singularly focused on fossil fuel extraction. Well, those are the ones that have some of the worst economic um, and environmental impacts. So cleaning up of methane emissions, making sure we don't just desert facilities that are going to continue to emit, making sure that we address PFAS, which is one of those like forever chemicals in water. So it really looks closely at how can we clean up what we've done, not just build better for the future. And it also creates this database, this um, climate and economic justice screening tool that I think is really, really important, because we need to be able to figure out where we need to work 
the most, who needs the help, where are emissions coming from, the criteria pollutants and toxics, not just greenhouse, not just CO2. So I think that it there's some pieces of it that are really important that are not just about proactively putting forward clean energy, but also making sure we clean up the dirty energy. And honestly, that will not only create jobs, but it will give people in those industries a path forward. I think a lot of those folks have felt really left behind and not part of the clean energy transition. And if we can bring them in, I think we'll have a lot more people involved and supportive of this. Emily, how do you think that this climate policy is going to land? There's clearly a lot of folks who really like it on the left, or maybe they don't really love it, but they're certainly excited about the fact that Biden is coming around on all these issues and particularly taking environmental justice seriously. How does this land in a general election, you think? I think there is a seductive framing to having a climate plan be a stimulus plan, a, a build back better plan. Uh, a, I think that when Vice President Biden was making his speech about the plan, his focus on the excitement of job creation in all of these sectors and framing this $2 trillion investment as something that will create and innovate and bring out the best in America. You know, he's saying things like, you know, Americans are creative. Where are the we are the best in the world. Like, if there's a problem, we're going to solve it. We're going to use it to our advantage. And he's saying stuff like Trump has no faith in us to do that. He just wants to keep doing the same old things and uh, bring back jobs that have already lost instead of creating new ones. You know, I think that is a seductive framing for a large-scale electorate. Uh, people don't know this about me. Uh, at least a lot of, not everybody knows this about me, but before... I was doing this, uh, climate reporting. I was reporting on the 2016 election, and I was reporting all over the country, talking to voters in Iowa, Ohio, Texas, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, swing states, uh, important fossil fuel industry states about a whole range of issues. And I do understand that there does need to be a different framing to appeal to a wide range of people. And I do think the the stimulus framing of a climate plan is good because most people who aren't into climate policy, they think of climate policy as something that we're spending just to solve a problem and not to create stuff. Um, so I think that's good. I do also want to briefly go back to something that Trigger said really early in this conversation about how this is just what the polling indicates. People want stuff like this, and that's probably why. Biden has gone all in on it, not because of activism. I would I would counter on that and say that the polling has said this for a really long time, and most centrist Democrats still haven't done anything about that, you know? And I think it's because people, despite what polling says that people support clean energy, there is, within that polling, far different interpretations among, among Americans on what clean energy policy means. I think that it's a failure in the polling, honestly, when when they say, oh, do you support clean energy? And everyone says, yeah, I support clean energy. What does that mean to you? For a lot of people on the left, that means solar and wind and geothermal only. For a lot of people, it means nuclear. For a lot of people, it means natural gas. For a lot of people, it means clean coal. There, You know, when people say, oh, I support climate policy, that really doesn't mean anything. What you have to ask is, do you support phasing out fossil fuels? Do you support investing this much money in the process? Those are the questions we don't have really great answers to. And I think why politicians like Joe Biden haven't been convinced that polling is why he should do anything. Yeah, look, I mean, I think part of what we talk about on this podcast, but also in the broader conversation is that, look, these politicians are there to serve the broadest possible electorate, right? That's how they get elected. And, you know, for them, they're always making calculations around who do we piss off and who do we actually empower? And, and you know, how do we make sure we're empowering more people than we piss off so that, you know, we actually get the requisite number of votes to get elected? I mean, I'd say that when I read this plan, I mean, there's a huge tightrope being crossed here with the unions. Um, I'm not clear at all that the unions were in full support of this, even though they expressed their full-throated support of this, because um, it's, you know, by definition— when you replace 1950 stuff with 2020 stuff, it takes less jobs to maintain that infrastructure, by definition, 
right? Like you might have a lot of construction jobs, but for the jobs that are actually going to be there for 30, 40, 50 years, right? There's a lot of jobs that are shifting, right? And many of those jobs are not unionized. And so I think that there's a lot of push and pull in here. And I don't disagree with you around some of the tensions there. And I do think that if this was framed as we're phasing out fossil fuels, then you'd have a lot less support. So I think we're on the same page. I I just don't believe that politicians broadly are doing this in the climate sphere. Maybe they are for healthcare or other things. Um, but in the climate sphere, I'm not sure they're doing it for the right reasons. They're doing it for a very calculated reason. And right now, I think we've spent pick a number, 20 years, making sure the calculations fell on our side. I sensed a little bit, I, I don't know if I sensed correctly, but I sensed a little bit of cynicism in that answer, Emily, when you talked about Biden's couching this as an infrastructure issue and not Me? talking about fossil Me? fuels. Me? Cynicism? <laughs> what? But I mean, like, <laughs> I, honestly, I mean, I think that that's how you have to, I mean, that it's effective framing because it's true, right? Like, I mean, of course, he's going to have to make some really heavy decisions about what to divest from. But A, I don't think that really matters right now in the the election process. And B, I mean, like the frame, the positive framing is absolutely true. I mean, it really it will create a lot of jobs. We have to build. We're going to be tearing a lot of stuff down. We're going to be building a lot of stuff up. So I wouldn't call it seductive because that implies that there's not much to it or that it's deceptive. I think it's an attractive framing because it's true. Yeah, it's true. And it leaves out some other stuff. Uh, but that's, that's fine. I mean, I do think that generally, it seems like we might be discounting the power of doing the political power of doing something for the right reason, um, and framing it in a way that we're going to save people's lives the same way we're trying to save people's lives from the coronavirus, especially when we're talking about Bernie Sanders supporters, people on the left who who I hear from a lot that don't feel like they want to cast a ballot in this election because because they don't feel like Biden is doing things for the right reasons. And they want to hear indications that he's doing things for the right reasons. I know that I personally, as a reporter, uh, when I hear when I hear only appeals to job creation and the economy, um, I I hear echoes of, well, we have to reopen the economy during the pandemic because the economy is more important than people's lives. And I think this framing of just the economy and not talking about the dire situation that we're in and the fact that this is a solution to a crisis is, um, it, it doesn't indicate, if I don't hear that, then I, then I don't have confidence as a reporter, analyst, pundit, whatever, to say I'm confident that if and when Joe Biden takes office, he'll do whatever it takes to solve the climate crisis. I'm confident he'll do whatever it takes to put a lot of jobs into the economy, but that's not going to solve the, that's not going to get us to 1.5 degrees Celsius stabilization, just a lot of solar and wind jobs. Catherine, turning to the the implementation of this plan, like how the heck would Biden pay for it if he does want to spend all this money and he does have this sort of focus on infrastructure and job creation that he thinks is the winning approach? How's he going to pay for it? Yeah, there are a lot of ways you can pay for it. First of all, you kind of have to say, like, why does that matter when we're in a crisis and money's so cheap right now? Um, but there are a lot of things you can do. Um, there are a lot of different ways you can make polluters pay. You can take away all the goodies that they get financially, so the fossil fuel credits. You can, you know, the corporates just got a huge tax cut a couple of years ago. You could pull back on some of that and have corporations pay more in taxes. That would give us a lot more funding. Um, I think that Biden is going to have, just the way Obama did, he's going to have the chance to do one really big thing. And with Obama, he had teed up health care and cap and trade. And health care won out. And, you know, arguably, we find ourselves in a place where that is really, really important. And we're trying to protect that health care. If you can do one thing and you're able to wrap it all into one big piece of legislation that deals with economic recovery, that deals with racial justice issues, 
and that deals with climate change, all within the context of where we find ourselves today, you may be able to get it done because all of those issues are tackled within his plan. And his plan isn't super granular, but I think there are a lot of folks. I talked to Sam Ricketts about, you know, he's, he was Inslee's guy and is now with Evergreen. They've come out with a plan. There are a lot of elements of plans by people like that and also people's, people in communities that the Biden folks have got to listen to because communities have to be super involved in how they want to transition and the resources that they need to do so. So I think if you can get all of these specific ideas put into place and couch it in one big thing, I think you he could get it done. That could be his one big thing, and he can tackle a lot of issues at once. The one thing that I was heartened by, Catherine, was that the Blue Dog Democrats said that we didn't have to pay for this. Yeah, uh, that was that was pretty amazing, because usually they're always saying, like, what's the pay for? But this is something we have to do. And the cost of not doing something so far outweighs the cost, this investment in doing something. The one other thing that I uh, want to highlight in the plan is the plan actually recognizes that we have a hard time with this valley of death stuff. And so they have dollars for pre-development and development of projects, which I think is pretty damn amazing, right? Because in general, that stuff is left to the private sector, then they have to pay somebody a million dollars to lobby for a loan guarantee. And the fact that they're actually coming in far earlier, not for technology like RPE, but actually for projects, I thought was a pretty bold stroke. Yeah, I share Emily's assessment that, that this kind of leaves out one half of how you deal with the problem. But when you look at the details of the, the build-out stuff, there's a lot of important solutions that have been borrowed from both real action and other plans that will help scale these technologies further. So I'm going to put you all on the spot here and ask you to share one word of description for Biden's new approach to climate or his evolved approach to climate. Uh, Emily, what's your one word for this, Biden's approach? Okay, first of all, this isn't fair <laughs> to have me do it first. Oh, no, it is. This is completely... <laughs> the, okay, fine. Um, improvement? That's Yeah, that's about what I would say, too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> one word is pretty... Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, Catherine, what about you? Oh, I guess thoughtful. I think this is I think this shows an evolution and change in the way he thinks about things. And I'm hoping he's internalizing it more. It seems like he is based on the way he's speaking in public now. But I'm going to put thoughtful out there. Jigger, I've been watching a lot of Disney's Lion Guard, so I'll call it unbungalievable. I don't even know what that means, but <laughs> it's I mean, it really is extraordinary for three million people who work in our industry. Like we've been waiting for decades for this level of leadership. And it's it's extraordinary. The word I'll use is, I guess, listening, because uh, if you look at what Biden was saying six months ago versus what he's saying now, he's clearly taken a lot of feedback into account crafting this plan and you know the task force that he put together brought a lot of perspectives together and and brought a lot of folks from the sanders camp into how he formed this new plan so i would say you know he's listening we are going to take a momentary break to talk about our sponsor fluence energy storage has reached an inflection point in market adoption it accelerates the deployment of renewables it helps the world reach critical emissions reduction targets and it delivers cost-effective grid services are you ready for the era of energy storage well fluence is with over 12 years of experience and decades of energy sector knowledge fluence is your trusted partner for the most complex energy storage projects pairing intimate market knowledge with cutting-edge technology and operational services their fully integrated sixth-generation technology stack combines modular factory-assembled hardware, comprehensive controls, and advanced digital intelligence with the latest safety advancements embedded in every level of product design and delivery. Scale from one megawatt to gigawatt-sized deployments with solutions tailored to your specific use case and application. Visit FluenceEnergy.com today to learn more. We're also brought to you by Wood McKenzie. Coronavirus is changing the shape of U.S. power markets. Business electricity demand fell when people stopped going into the office, and household demand hasn't picked up the slack. Across the country, demand and power prices have dropped. Who knows how long it will last? 
In ERCOT, the decline in power prices will reinforce the difficulty of financing new projects. In PJM, the near-term loss in loads is going to make oversupply from the recent boom in new natural gas plants even more challenging. And in California, the loss of demand is likely to make it easier for power providers to maintain generous reserve margins. What does that mean for your business and your projects? Well, the Wood Mackenzie Power Team can help you make decisions with confidence and minimize risk. If this is the kind of market intelligence you're looking for right now, Wood Mackenzie has it here for you. Reach out at power at woodmac.com. That's power at woodmac.com to learn more about the power analysis that Wood Mackenzie delivers to its clients. And it also helps inform this show, too. Let's turn now to Facebook. For years, Facebook has been a dumping ground for disinformation, much of it from right-wing conspiracists and pundits that thrive on the platform. And one issue that has gotten a lot of play is climate. Facebook has developed a fact-checking system, and we're going to get into the limits of that system in this conversation But last year, the company partnered with a lot of different experts, including climate scientists, to review posts about climate change. And Emily, our guest, has been writing about the limits of this uh, Facebook policy and system. She's been writing about it with her collaborator, Judd Legum, and they reported this week that some of those fact checks are being removed by Facebook. And it followed some similar reporting from E&E News about the loopholes that are emerging. And it turns out that climate content and a lot of other stuff, can be categorized as opinion, freeing it from fact-checking. John Podesta, the former chief of staff for President Obama, told The New York Times that this is, quote, a loophole that you can drive a Mack truck through. So, Emily, you've been covering this extensively. What is the Facebook fact-checking system? So when an article goes viral on Facebook and it potentially contains false claims... Um, It will be flagged by Facebook's independent third-party fact-checking system. This is a group of news outlets and similar type outlets that partner with Facebook but are technically independent from Facebook that will take the article. One of them, let's say it's the Pointer Institute, Science Feedback, which we've been doing a lot of reporting on, or even the Daily Caller is a Facebook uh, fact-checking partner. That's a conservative website founded by Tucker Carlson. And so the article will be flagged by a third-party fact-checker. They will run a fact-check if they determine that it is false or partly false or contains a conspiracy theory. There's a number of different labels they can put on it. They'll put a label on it. Um, Let's say the article contains mostly false information, the article on Facebook will then get a false flag on it. It'll say this article has been fact-checked and it's false. That will not only put a warning to the Facebook user before they share it that it's false, it will suppress the ability of the article to be shared uh, if somebody does choose to share it anyway. So if I share a false article, it might not show up on your feed because the Facebook sharing algorithm has suppressed it. It's the same for a partly false rating. The suppression will be less than a false rating. Facebook tries to take itself out of that process according to its policy. You know, it says, you know, this is our independent fact checkers are doing this, not us. And so that's why it's notable when Facebook interferes and interjects itself into that fact-checking process. So our dear friends, Pat Michaels uh, of the CO2 Coalition uh, and Michael Schellenberger, a longtime renewable energy skeptic, have written pieces with uh, factually inaccurate information about uh, climate change. These independent reviewers came in and said these are, you know, false or partly false. And then they raised a big stink and Facebook came in and said, actually, we're going to categorize these as opinion. And they took the rating off. What is going on here? Why are they doing this? And what, why are, do they feel like they're under so much pressure to make these changes and categorize them as opinion and then let this you know, misinformation or disinformation run free? I'm going to first say that it's a little more complicated than that, actually, because we have two examples of fact checks being removed from two different climate stories on Facebook. The first one is the CO2 coalition story, the Pat Michaels op-ed, right? That, And the basic deal with that one is that after it got a false rating, 
the CO2 coalition, Pat Michael's complaint, and Facebook directly intervened, told the independent fact-checking partner called Science Feedback, told them to remove it because it was an op-ed. And that caused the first uh, SHIT storm. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse. Um, <laughs> you can. Okay, so that caused the first shit storm. So that's when things started to get loud. People were like, why is Facebook interfering in this process and saying, oh, that's opinion. It's allowed to not be fact-checked when it contained clearly false factual claims. So created a huge tank. Facebook was like, ugh, don't want to deal with this. Then the Schellenberger piece got published and started to go viral. Same process kicked in. It got rated partly false. It got flagged again internally, and a representative from a Republican congressman's office complained to Facebook, flagged it, and they were like, come on, take this off. And Facebook's internal misinformation guy sent a memo to all of Facebook's top executives and were like, they're asking us to remove one again, but we actually think we shouldn't do it this time because the fact check is well-founded and we got a lot of crap last time, so let's not do anything about it. And then, like, two days later, the fact check was removed. Science Feedback this time removed the fact check after getting talked to by the Daily Wire, which is a conservative site that posted the article. And we still have questions as to how exactly and why exactly that kind of happened because Facebook has basically abandoned their opinion loophole thing now. They're basically saying, okay, you can fact check opinion if it has facts in it. They've, in response to all this, they've changed it, but we're still seeing evidence that fact checks are getting removed from climate stories that contain misinformation after lots of pressure. So we're not exactly sure what's going on other than perhaps, you know, Listen, these conservative news Facebook pages like the Daily Wire and its network of other pages direct so much traffic on Facebook. They're, they're really important to Facebook. They're consistently in the top 10 or the top three. I mean, they are always at the top most shared outlets on Facebook. Yeah. And it's been documented that Mark Zuckerberg has a, you know, a relatively close relationship with Ben Shapiro, who uh, is the editor-in-chief of Daily Wire and, and Associated Pages, I cannot explain to you why Facebook does not target climate misinformation and disinformation as aggressively as it targets coronavirus misinformation and disinformation and hate speech, considering they're all rated by public health experts to be emergencies to public health. All of them are considered by doctors associations, nurses associations, American Medical Association, American Heart Association to be immediate public health threats. And yet somehow this climate change misinformation is less of a priority. Facebook spokesperson has said publicly that it's less of a priority for them. I can't explain why that that is happening except for either general genuine ignorance or perhaps some sort of interest in keeping that kind of misinformation alive on the conservative Facebook pages that bring Facebook a lot of ad revenue. Emily, I have a question. I'm not on Facebook, so I can feel morally superior right now <laughs> not being part of it, <laughs> but, but um, which also means I miss all this stuff. So one of the questions I have is how many people's minds does, does this kind of stuff, this, you know, inaccurate opinion about climate, how many minds does it actually change? Like, I'm trying to understand on Facebook in that subset of people who to whom this would be fed. Is this just merely affirming what they thought before giving them better arguments to throw out at the Thanksgiving table? Or does this have a really damaging impact to a wider audience? That's a really good question. And what I think, uh, just from studying the history of fossil fuel uh, funded disinformation, climate denial, why it started, what the purpose of climate denial is. The purpose of misinformation is not to convince you to be a climate denier. It's not even to make you think that all climate models are false. It's to instill some sort of doubt in your mind that it's actually really, a, that climate change is actually really a severe problem that we need to take action on right now. If you are still 
if you still think that, you know, maybe there's something about this science that's a little, that, that we still have questions about, that it's maybe that's, you know, I think climate change is real, but I, I'm not really sure. I saw this thing about these models, and I know that there are questions out there, and I know they're legitimate because I saw it on my favorite website. So, I'm, you know, I'm not really sure how, how serious that is. That's the biggest obstacle to climate action in public opinion today. It's not really deniers. Um, they only make up like 18% of the population, like real deniers. But people who are concerned but not alarmed because they're like, eh, I don't really know. That's that's the majority of the population, and that's why we don't have climate action, and that's the purpose of misinformation, disinformation on climate denial. So I wouldn't say that these articles convince you to, that climate models are wrong, but they do, I think they have a pretty severe effect in kind of making you think, you know what, I'm not even going to, I don't know what's going on with this uh, next article, you know? I think that's a really powerful description of the problem, and it's true for you know, vaccinations for the coronavirus emergency for a wide range of issues. That's why the books about this are called, you know, merchants of doubt. Yeah. They're not called merchants of denial, right? <laughs> they just want to make you confused. They want to sow confusion and doubt so that you throw your hands up and just say, whatever, I'm sure someone will deal with it. The really interesting piece of this story for me is how the scrutiny on Facebook has evolved and since the 2016 election. And of course, Facebook has, since its founding, called itself a platform. It says it can't police the speech on its platform, uh, has never considered itself a publisher, and it still does not consider itself a publisher. But quietly behind the scenes, of course, they are now devoting some money to local news organizations um, because they have absolutely decimated local news. Um, they've sucked all the advertising revenue out of you know the news business, and it's really hurt local news outlets. Uh, they have allowed disinformation and misinformation to proliferate on the platform, and it really came to a head in 2016 in leading into that election. But since then, they have made some public overtures. They've created some bodies and some fact-checking systems, and they still do not consider themselves a news organization. But right now, we're having a conversation that feels very much like the judgments a news organization would make. And I wonder where the, all this is heading, right? The climate piece is a window into this bigger problem that Facebook has. And I wonder if you have any thoughts, Emily, on whether we are going to start considering Facebook or whether Facebook would, will consider itself a news outlet eventually. And that makes these fact checks and this, these systems in place that much more important. Well, I hope Facebook never considers itself a news outlet because that would be an insult to my entire profession. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. You yes, know what I no, mean. I know. I know what you mean. Um, I, a publisher. A publisher. You know, I do. I think that it's smart for Facebook to have an independent fact-checking system and to really leave it to professionals. I can't really say that I know exactly how Facebook can strengthen its commitment to fact-checking in order to be, in order to really prioritize the spread of dangerous misinformation. But what I can say is that I think that if Facebook doesn't figure out a way, a creative way to acknowledge the harms that its platform can cause and address them, that eventually the public or the government might figure it out for them um, through policy and through regulation. Um, I think that if Mark Zuckerberg keeps trying to deny the reality of his own platform, which is that it's a publisher, it plays a huge role in influencing the American electorate, and, uh, and misinformation on the platform has, can cause real damage uh, to democracy, uh, if he keeps denying that and saying that he doesn't need to figure out a real solution to it, I think that eventually he's going to see an attempt to regulate. Okay, so the Facebook piece has uh, been a big piece of your reporting lately. You've been focusing on Biden's climate plan and, um, and the Democratic Party climate platform. What, else, uh, what other narratives are you focusing as we head into deeper into the election season uh, and deeper into the climate crisis at Heated? Um, I'm really interested in just generally climate change as a political corruption story and how uh, polluters use their money and influence to 
get politicians uh, to support things, not support things. I think the recent story about the Ohio Speaker of the House taking a $61 million bribe from First Energy, uh, this this public electric utility to uh, bail out three of their coal plants and kill renewable energy uh, policy is really interesting. And I, I'm, I'm really interested in pursuing that. I'm really interested in pursuing corporate climate change narratives, um, the, the disconnect between what really big companies say about sustainability and environment and then what they're actually doing um, to prevent or promote climate denial or climate policy delay. Um, those are my favorite things to tackle. I've got a bunch of stories in the works about all those things, and it's a... Um, this is the craziest story. Climate change is the craziest story there is, I think, for a journalist. So it's, it's going to be a busy season. Well, you set us up nicely for the third topic. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. Really enjoy your writing. Uh, Emily Atkin is, uh, runs the newsletter Heated, and you can go check that out and subscribe. And, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Emily. Well, that was a good transition into our third segment. It was supposed to be about some fast and sleek electric cars until suddenly, midweek, twin scandals rocked Midwestern legislatures and power markets. The Speaker of the Ohio House of Representatives, Larry Householder, and four other men, including the former chair of the Ohio Republican Party, were arrested and are facing a maximum of 20 years in prison on racketeering conspiracy charges. They're charged with receiving more than $60 million through layers of companies in exchange for keeping nuclear power plants alive at public expense, even as the plants continue to bleed money. The bribery money appears to have come from the nuclear plant's owner, First Energy. And that's not even all. In Illinois, a subsidiary of the utility Exelon, ComEd, is now on probation and will pay a $200 million penalty for paying off a high-ranking but unnamed official in Illinois for eight years. Uh, That's a lot of money, and it went to help elect 21 members of the Illinois House who are friendly to ComEd. Let's go to Ohio first. The owner of these nuclear plants was obviously desperate to keep them running. This is very much a story about the current economics of traditional power plants, along with being a corruption story or whatever Jigger, whatever language Jigger wants to use. Um, Jigger, what happened here in Ohio? Well, as many of us have been discussing on this podcast and in many other places, First Energy is a terribly run company and has been for a long time. And so it had power plants that frankly, weren't profitable, right? And after the Trump administration came in, they worked hard with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the Department of Energy and tried to figure out how to get their plants to be worth more. Um, When those efforts didn't work, they went directly to the state legislature and said, um, we need to figure out how to get a subsidy to keep our plants open. And to do that, they tapped our good friend, you know, Larry Householder. And Larry, just to be clear, was accused of and acquitted of issues occurring in 2001 to 2004 when he was Speaker of the House. And so he had to resign his speakership in 2004. So this was, you know, his second go around here. And what they said was first, hey, you have to become Speaker again. So here's some walking around money to give to all the other folks in the caucus, right? Legitimate money, right? PAC money to get people to vote for you, right? As speaker, right? If you vote for me as speaker, I'll make sure another $10,000 goes into your PAC. And he became speaker. And then, you know, they had this slush fund that basically was used to get House Bill 6 passed, which was mainly a bill to subsidize the nuclear plants. I know the coal plants are involved here, but I think just so everybody knows, the coal plants were already approved for their subsidies by the Public Service Commission and the Administrative Law Judge, right? So so they were just basically, you know, making it even tighter in the legislation. It wasn't new money that was put into the the coal plants. And the the sad thing about the whole thing is like one of the staff members of Larry Householder was caught on text, which is in it which is in the complaint, saying, the more we explain this bill, the less people like it. So we should explain it less. You know, like for many of us, 
we have seen this kind of utility overreach for years, right? Whether it's utilities that own their regulators, right? Regulatory capture, like Arizona Public Service or Southern Company and others have shown many times, or, you know, utilities paying actors to, you know, perform in front of city councils as advocates for projects like Entergy did in, uh, in you know, Louisiana, um, or I think San Diego Gas and Electric Sempra also got accused of the same thing. I mean, or you actually have folks who put in dark money, like Consumers Energy put in $43 million to try to, you know, defend themselves from a ballot initiative and Arizona Public Services done the same, et cetera. So I think we've come to expect this kind of activity from investor-owned utilities, which I don't understand why we do, and it may be an indictment. But in this case, this was a clear quid pro quo, right? This is clearly the first energy saying, I am giving you this money. I would like this economic benefit in return. And that is clearly illegal. Even under Citizens United, that's illegal. You cannot go to somebody and say, I will give you this money if you do this for me. Yeah, this was racketeering. This was uh, $60 million, not just um, campaign donations. So I had a group, Advanced Energy Management Alliance. We were intervening in some of this, submitting testimony for in support of demand response. And we thought, well, you know, if it's just campaign donations, that's one thing. But that was the tip of the iceberg. This is $60 million for a $1.3 billion bailout, which is a 2,000% return on investments pretty good deal. Cost of doing business, I guess, is what they thought. But this dark group generation now and this Ohioans for energy security that raised all these scary, scary ads about how this is going to be like state grid of China. But what this really means that the the consumers of Ohio, and this was an enormously unpopular bill, very divisive, very expensive for the consumers. It gutted energy efficiency. It rolled back clean energy standards. It subsidized these uneconomic plants. But what it's also done is it's really pointed to the fact that we need regional markets for energy to keep things fair for consumers and to make sure that we have competition. Is if you allow states that are run by these utilities to have that much influence where the utilities can just put whatever costs that they want to onto consumers, I mean, not all of them want to do that, but in this case, they did, then what you have is all these plants that are operating out of the market. And if you have a regional market like PJM, then you are held back on your cost and you're only awarded for being able to provide services and at a reasonable cost to consumers. And so that's why it's so important. We've talked about this before to make sure that states aren't able to cut these sweet deals and which causes this whole environment of corruption. And instead that you allow regional competition and that makes that levelizes the playing field for everyone. Let's turn to Illinois really quickly. Apparently, the the watchdog there is not satisfied with the probation period for ComEd, and they think that the corruption could go much higher. This this could get deeper. Is what what's going on in Illinois, and is the scandal likely to grow? Jigger. So this is far different from Ohio, right? I mean, to be clear, what happened here was Speaker Madigan was trying to shake down ComEd, and basically said. This this can go one of two ways. Either it can go in a way that you I, that you like, or you don't like. And the way in which we're going to make this happen is, I need one of my people to become a board member at Comet. And what Comet did wrong here was they didn't immediately turn this over to the FBI. Instead, they said, "Well, what if we gave this person a job at the company instead? Right? We don't really want to put him on the board, right?" And and I think that's where Exelon and Comet really screwed up. This is not the same as what happened in Ohio. It's still bad, right? They should have turned it over to the FBI, just like the Trump administration should have turned over the Russians to the FBI as soon as they contacted them. But like, it's not the same thing as saying, here's $61 million, I need this to happen, please make this happen, right? And so, I mean, in Ohio, you know, this is all the way from Mike DeWine all the way down, right? The chair of the Public Utilities Commission, San Randazzo, actually, like, has a distinction of advanced energy economy, others basically said, we're going to exit the state if you pick this person as chairman. And they did. They exited the state because he gets paid by First Energy on the side through his private practice. This all came out before his confirmation hearing. So my sense is, is that this is a pattern of corruption that, frankly, I have never seen this scale in Ohio um, across the country. It's still like sort of, you know, shows investor-owned utility power. 
but it's just pretty damning across the board. Yeah, and just remember, Illinois' Governor Pritzker ran on a clean energy platform. So Illinois is more friendly to clean energy anyway. And this sort of investigation, um, although the utility has gotten completely wrapped up in it, it creates a vacuum when the utility is not at the table because there's actually... Uh, potential for doing a lot more on clean energy with you know with they're going to eventually have a renewable portfolio standard you know there there is much more ability to do that in Illinois than in Ohio where like as Jigger said even the utility the uh, lieutenant governor has said you know wind solar and batteries are great but they're they're not really available and viable to us now so Ohio we're not even anywhere Illinois we are and we need everybody at the table to make it happen in Illinois All right, let's turn now to our free electrons to close out the show. Catherine, what's your story this week? Yeah, so I don't know if everybody saw the announcement from Apple. And full disclosure, I do a little bit of work with them. But they made a really big deal this week. They're already at 100% renewables for their own operations and already carbon neutral for their own corporation. But Apple's announced that now they're going to be carbon neutral for their entire manufacturing supply chain, everybody they do business with and for their products. Um, completely by 2030, 75% emission reduction by 2030. Um, They've really moved from being just about products to internalizing all of this environmental impact. I think that's partly because their customers want it, but they can also like build in innovation to everything that they're doing. It doesn't seem to impact their bottom line. Um, And it's super cool. They're doing low carbon product design, they're doing more efficiency, renewables, um, process and material innovation, and actually doing a lot of carbon removal too. So every Mac you buy is now got low carbon aluminum in it. Is that former EPA administrator Lisa Jackson still there? Is she is she heading it up? up the- it is. She's leading up all of those operations. She's been amazing. One of my favorite quotes of all time is Tim Cook on a shareholder call a couple of years ago when an investor lambasted him for his climate strategy. And he said, if you don't like what we're doing, don't own the stock. Get out of here. It was it was like a really great moment. Totally. Jigger, what's your free electron? So the last couple of days, I've been a part of um, a national conversation on uh, direct air carbon capture and figuring out, you know, how we get the cost down today. It's around $300 a ton. And tomorrow it might be, you know, something closer to 50 bucks a ton. And it was really fantastic to see how much stuff is actually going on. One thing I'd point people to is that Governor Cuomo in New York actually has a green cement deal in the legislature. And uh, we'll see if it actually becomes law, but it basically, you know, provides for state agencies to start buying green cement. And uh, it was crafted with a lot of the green cement technologies that are available today, many of which have been around for 10 plus years, but have never really found a market for themselves. For those, So for those of us who believe in sort of deployment-led innovation, we might be seeing deployment of green cement solutions soon. Yeah. And green cement's better than regular cement too. Absolutely. Anything audio-related catches my eyes and ears. So the New York Times have has this great feature. We all know the New York Times is really stepping up its audio game. And the Times just put out this super cool feature on how coronavirus quieted city noise. And they've taken these research microphones and compared the noise before the pandemic to the noise afterward. And you can listen to these very long recordings about what's happening in on the corner of New York City streets. And we all know that, you know, the city landscape is changing because of this pandemic. But when you hear these clips side by side, it is very extraordinary. And although activity is picking back up, the noise is still a lot quieter. And I, 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 like I talk a lot about what's going on around me here in East Boston. We have the airport, we have industrial activity. And it was like when the shutdown happened, we went from pretty loud neighborhood to a nature park. It, it was one of the more stunning changes I've ever witnessed in my life. And so this New York Times feature is a really worthwhile exploration. If, if you like sound and you like um, these really stark comparisons. I will also say that the New York Times just acquired Serial Productions too, the folks behind the uh, groundbreaking podcast Serial. So uh, a lot more interesting audio stuff coming out of the New York Times. Very cool. You know, as someone who grew up in a rural area who always had a lot of quiet around him and also didn't have as much light pollution, right? So I could actually see, you know, Comet 
meteor showers, etc. But uh, I wonder whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It feels like there should be there should be some areas that are actually loud because that's actually a sign of economic activity. Yeah, well, I came down downtown DC today, and there's just nobody on the streets at all. I saw like two people walking with masks, and that was it. So. Things have definitely changed. But that's bad, right? I mean, doesn't it feel like that's an economic, like, bad, you know, signal? Yeah, it's bad for real estate. It's also bad for all those people who sell sandwiches to the people who are normally in those office buildings. Yeah. Doesn't make it any less interesting to hear, though, Jigger. No, no, I'm fascinated by all this stuff. I just, um, I just, I worry that we're going to have a whole bunch of people who live in New York City who basically will now want to force sort of, like, noise ordinances that are unusually low because they enjoyed it for so long and like, you know, during the pandemic. That's going to do it for the show. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Our senior editor is Ingrid Lobet. Sean Marquand mixes the show. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are, of course, my co-hosts, and uh, I am the executive producer. Thank you for listening. If you want to show your support and help the show grow, Send out the word on social media. Send a link to a friend or colleague. Word of mouth is still really helpful to us, and we get a lot of recommendations a lot. So if you have, a, have someone in your life who you think would benefit from this show or enjoy our conversation, send them, send them the episode or the, the whole feed. Uh, give us a rating and review on Apple as well or anywhere you get your podcast. That's super helpful. And we can, of course, be found anywhere you download your podcast. We'll be here with you next week as always this is the energy gang weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy thanks for being here talk to you soon